Welcome to the Health Leader Forge, where today's health leaders help to forge the leaders of tomorrow. I'm your host, Mark Bonica, of the University of New Hampshire's Department of Health Management and Policy and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Our website is healthleaderforge.org, where you can find information about subscribing to the podcast, links and information related to the episode, as well as our complete archives. Today's guest is Dr. Raymond A. Levy, the Executive Director of the Fatherhood Project. The Fatherhood Project is a nonprofit fatherhood program in the Department of Psychiatry at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts. The mission of the program is to improve the health and well-being of children and families by empowering fathers to be knowledgeable, active, and emotionally engaged with their children. Dr. Levy is a clinical psychologist specializing in psychoanalysis with over 35 years of experience in the field. In this podcast, we talk about the training Dr. Levy underwent to become a psychotherapist and his career leading up to his founding of the Fatherhood Project. We then talk about the origins of the Fatherhood Project, the kinds of programming and research Dr. Levy's team undertakes, and the challenges of running a small mission-oriented nonprofit. I think listeners will get a lot out of this interview. First, Dr. Levy does a very nice job explaining the field of psychotherapy, which is very interesting. Second, his discussion of how the Fatherhood Project grew out of a research project is enlightening about the origins of great innovations. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Don't forget to leave us feedback on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you may be accessing this recording. Also, I'm excited to announce that we are now getting the podcast transcribed thanks to a financial gift from the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Thanks for listening, and here is Dr. Raymond Levy. So welcome to The Forge, Dr. Levy. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. You earned a Doctor of Psychology degree, or PsyD, from the Massachusetts School of Professional Psychology in 1982. And I believe it's now called the William James College? It is now William James College, yes. Okay. Before earning your PsyD, you earned a Bachelor of Arts from the University of Pennsylvania and an MA from the University of Hartford. Were your prior studies also in psychology, or or was the the PsyD uh, a new thing for you? Uh, Well, academically... I wasn't really interested in psychology as a as an undergrad. I majored in history, Russian history. I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do with that, but my my two undergrad courses in the psychology, I didn't do very well because they they, they were very um, boring to me actually and turned me away from psychology as opposed to uh, toward psychology. But when I when I graduated, I got a job uh, teaching at a uh, at a private school in Connecticut. And because of an area of interest that I was not aware of, I was asked to be on the counseling staff there. Oh, okay. And that's how I became interested in, in the field of psychology and uh, the inner workings of people's minds, their psyches. And then I got a master's degree at the University of Hartford, but decided that that wasn't enough, that I, uh, I really needed a doctorate. Uh, which is a terminal degree. So I really felt I needed a terminal degree in order to have uh, an expansive career with opportunity. Now, the master's degree was in counseling or? Uh, It was was called clinical practices. Okay. So it was what I would now call a relatively um, elementary approach to clinical work without the depth and without the, uh, in many cases, the people were not, uh, my fellow students were not, going to go on to get uh, doctoral degrees. So, um, But would it have allowed you to practice some sort of counseling or therapy? Well, not independently, okay. uh, but it would have allowed me to, uh, well, did allow me actually to be on the staff uh, mental health center in Gloucester. Okay. Uh, when I, th- this is a matter of interest. I was living in Hartford. I moved to Boston because my wife wanted to go to graduate school up here. And I sent out 105 letters to various community clinics, mental health centers, looking for interviews and jobs, and I got one response and one job. So that was that was <laughs> 105. 105. I will never forget that. Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. So why did you choose the Massachusetts School of Professional Psychology? Well, that's an interesting question. So I was working full time in Gloucester, and I decided I wanted a doctoral degree. 
and my wife was here in school, so I had to stay in the. I wanted to stay in the Boston area, and I I didn't really um, the, the Massachusetts School of Professional Psychology, William James College, was in its early stages, its early days. In fact, I was in the first graduating class. And it had a very flexible program as far as time goes. So I was able to continue to work either 30 or 35 hours a week and be a full-time student at in, in the doctoral program at uh, the Mass School of Professional Psychology. So you were working in doing mental health therapy of some sort? I was, yeah. Uh, and at the same time pursuing your professional degree? Exactly. Your, your yes, degree. I was. That's right. Oh, wow. Okay. That must have been some good synergies there between your day-to-day -day and, and your education. That is absolutely true. You know, I was studying the very, the very ideas and approaches that I was using during the day. So when my classes started at 4 o'clock, that was very familiar to me. And I, from my work on the counseling staff in, at the private school in Connecticut, I had become very interested in uh, psychotherapy, individual okay. psychotherapy. So uh, that was really wonderful for me. I very much enjoyed being in graduate school, and especially while I was working at the same time. Did you develop a specialty while you were in, in your training? You mentioned psychotherapy. Right. Well, it depends what you mean by a specialty. I, mean, okay. I would say individual psychotherapy is a specialty. Nowadays, uh, the term specialty is uh, sometimes used differently, and but there was no particular age group except, uh, well, adults. I was interested in in adults, and uh, but no particular psychiatric diagnosis, for example. Okay. Like some people say that they're spe they specialize in anxiety disorders, for example. I feel I treat anxiety disorders as well as anybody, so... <laughs> When you were in your training, so did you did you choose to work on psychotherapy? Were there other avenues that you could have pursued while you were doing your graduate work? Uh, some other kind of therapy? Oh yeah, uh, the oh, other kind of therapy because there was community consultation I, that I could have done. Okay. Organizational development. Uh, there were other possibilities, but I was uh, deeply involved with individual psychotherapy. Could you explain what that means? For, uh, well, for a lay person, what what is, what is psychotherapy? Okay, it, <laughs> it's a little hard now to have a unitary uh, definition uh, because there, I myself, I think that the concept of psychotherapy has been devalued. So everybody thinks that they can do psychotherapy, including insurance companies that uh, whose requirements uh, have uh, uh, decreased over the years for those people who uh, they will reimburse for psychotherapy. But it's essentially talk therapy is a meeting between two people in which both people agree to try to understand underlying dynamics, underlying emotions that the person who's in the role of patient is not aware of for the purpose of unlocking the person's energy and capacities and uh, uh, potential. And um, different people go about it in little different ways. But my own, you know, it, it's in the context of a trusting relationship and um, where a person can talk about things that they might be fearful of talking about or only gradually becoming aware of. And they understand, understand things about themselves and enrich their possibilities in life. So what does success look like when you work with a patient? Great question. Maybe the best way to get at that is to give you an example. So I'm just starting to work with a man in his 20s who he and I agree both in his relationships and his work life. He's never really felt free to pursue what he wants, to, to say to himself, this is my passion. This is what I want to do. This is the kind of, this is the woman I want as opposed to uh, what he recently had, which was a relationship that he thought was was good enough and he could get by for a while and he felt some sense of obligation to the woman so he was involved with her but now he's recently uh, broken up which i think is a good sign the success that he's that he's not settling for being involved both in his work life and his romantic life in something based on obligation as opposed to something that is a reflection of who he is and what he wants in life and a more passionate connection to life. So success would be 
getting the um, uh, helping him uh, remove the obstacles so that he can allow himself to have what he wants in the world. I was reading in your bio that you do psychodynamic therapy. Yes. What's the difference between traditional, if I, is this right phrasing, traditional psychotherapy and psychodynamic therapy? <laughs> or is that, that may I'm, not be the right terminology, I, I'm but I'm laughing familiar. because uh, for uh, many, many decades, the only psychotherapy was psychodynamic psychotherapy. Oh, okay. And what's happened in the last 15 or 20 years is, and um, I, I think with mixed results myself, something called cognitive behavioral therapy has become, I don't know, uh, certainly more known, more, more, uh, more popular in the public view, and the population is, seems to be uh, somewhat convinced that this is the magic pill that people have been looking for for uh, a long time. But the, the, uh, the difference is that in psychodynamic psychotherapy, we believe that in our families and in our early experience in life, that we adjust to who our mothers and fathers are. We relate in specific ways because it's necessary to uh, please them, to get what you want from them, because they get upset if you uh, don't accommodate their their values, their, uh, their ideas, their child-rearing strategies. So everybody adjusts to the environment that you grow up in. And in, in some cases, that seems flexible enough that people can uh, go on and understand what they want, what their niche is in the world, uh, who they are, and they can have a very nice life. In many cases, the, the, uh, because of the very reasons that we have made adjustments growing up, we are hiding from ourselves. We don't quite know about levels of feelings, levels of wishes, aspects of ourself that we, we've had to hide or suppress in order to get along in the world. And so a psychodynamic approach tries to help people get beyond the ways that they've adapted in the world and get to a level of understanding of themselves that, that feels to them more genuine, more authentic, more an expression of who they are and with the hope that it leads to satisfaction in, in, in the world. It sounds like what you're describing with psychodynamic therapy really goes back to parenting and this, this theme of fatherhood that you've, you've, you are now deeply engaged with. It sounds like, is, is psychodynamic therapy always reaching back to childhood and kind of your, your rearing, your, your family dynamics from, yeah. from? A good question. In, in, in both, psychodynamic therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy, it's always good to know what a person's background is, uh, what their mother was like, what their father was like, what their relationships with each of the important people in their lives, including siblings, were like. That doesn't mean necessarily that every person has to relive their early experiences or spend years talking about their mother or their father, but there are there are patterns that develop in us early, and it's good for the therapist, me, uh, to be able to recognize those patterns so that when I see them in adults, I can point them out and we can have conversations about whether these patterns, in what ways these patterns are helping uh, in a person's life, and in what ways these patterns are hindering a person's life. So do I believe that the source of our adult functioning is born in childhood? Yes, I would say that is that is the case. Sometimes it's very adaptive and, you know, there's no need for therapy and there are no problems. That's fine. I happen to see the people for whom that's not the case. Right, right. They come, yeah, they come to you because that's not exactly. the case. Yeah. So you completed your, your doctoral work and you became a staff psychologist at Cambridge Hospital in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And you worked there from 1984 to 1994. I worked correct? there as teaching and supervising. I didn't see patients there, but a colleague, one of my mentors, uh, helped me get on the staff because he thought I had ability and potential. Uh, so I was, uh, I would teach trainees, psychology trainees, and supervise social workers and uh, and psychologists. Okay, so so this was 
were you also, did you also have a separate private practice at that yes, point as well? Uh, yes. When I graduated MSPP, I set up an office in Cambridge okay. and started to see patients privately uh, without any institutional uh, connection. Okay. And uh, I've been doing that for 34 years. So you've always had a private practice, and I've then always. you've also been involved with institutions for, it seems like, most of your career. Yes. One way well, or yes, I always wanted colleagues, and also I enjoyed teaching, but also I wanted to get known because that, that also would help my private practice. And w one thing that I'll mention that I've said to so many people over the years, actually, I made sure, I, I, I've always worked a lot of hours, uh, many, many, many hours. When I started building my private practice, I was also working at a place called General Medical Associates, seeing patients. It's an outpatient medical facility affiliated with Mass General, but operating independently in Weston, Massachusetts. And they were pediatrics and internal medicine and other specialties, dermatology and psychiatry. And I was the uh, a psychologist on the staff, and the doctors there would refer patients to me. So I was working, I don't quite remember, maybe 30 hours there, 35, while I was building my private practice. And it was absolutely necessary, and I tell all the people who are involved in training with me that you can't just hang up a shingle and expect to be busy full-time. So you have to be working at some institution and gradually you build a reputation and get referrals and while you're doing that you're working many many hours yeah so 50 that, to 60 hours is that a fairly standard way of developing a practice do most providers psychology in particular or uh, do you do you find yes people for, follow the same path you did yes absolutely for the people who uh, who want to build a private practice after training they always have an institutional affiliation, maybe on a part-time basis or three-quarter time uh, basis, and then uh, they, they build their practice out of meeting new colleagues, getting referrals, making referrals, teaching, and presenting papers at conferences, local and national, and writing so that, uh, they, so that they're known. But, yeah, it's a lot of work. I mean, there's no, there's no way around it. It's okay. a lot of hours, a lot of work. If you love it, uh, like I have, I've been very. You're very fortunate, and I feel very fortunate to have, you know, my work as a companion throughout my whole life. And I, even though I'm actually at or beyond the age of retirement, uh, although that's a moving target these days, I have no interest in retiring. I just like what I do. I want to continue to do it, and uh, I recommend to people if you love what you do, it uh, pays dividends over the decades. I, I like to ask clinicians that I speak to about their sense of competence as a practitioner and kind of when did you, uh, when did you look at yourself in the mirror and say, I am a, a doctor. I, I have achieved the competence that I'm an independent practitioner. Was well, it, was it when you finished your schooling, maybe before that, sometime after? Um, I would say after I finished my schooling because when I went back, to, to the doctoral program, I realized, you know, as often happens in life, I, di I didn't know what I didn't know because I had only had a two-year master's degree before. And then when I went to the doctoral program, I just met new different people and I met maybe a more gifted faculty and I understood that what I was doing to be good at it is actually more complicated. So I was supervised by multiple people and, you know, it took me a while. I would say after graduation, I felt I was qualified to see patients one year after graduation because we, we needed a certain number of hours in order to sit for the state licensing exam postdoctoral after getting the degree. But I had a growing sense of competence through my supervision, which I continued as I was in practice. And, you know, the practice of psychotherapy is maybe a little different than some, some uh, professions. Uh, you know, there are still cases where I get confused, where I'm not certain, and I, I will go for a consultation to my mentor to talk about the feeling that I'm missing something. And usually after a conversation, maybe two, I'm back on track and I understand 
uh, more about the patient and more about the work that we need to, we need to do. You mentioned mentors. That's a, a theme that I like to explore with my guests. So you, you said you have you have a mentor now. Um, well, or you, or you, you did. He's you, still alive. Uh, <laughs> and do you still consult with? with I do sometimes. Yeah. I, I do. Sometimes it's over a meal. It's not as formal, but yes, he he likes to hear me present cases or problems, and with some of my cases. And I, I value that very highly. I met him in my first job after my doctoral program at General Medical Associates, which I mentioned. He was the psychiatrist who hired me there. And I would meet with him and then be supervised by him. And it really clicked very nicely. And I learned, you know, a lot of the, if I, if I, if I came out of graduate school, 60 to 70 percent toward full competency he uh, he got me above uh, 90 or 95 let's say and so i'm very uh, grateful to him he's been a very important part of my life i think i grew personally by being supervised by him on my cases also he he was not my therapist but uh, i grew personally and when i when i published two books i was very clear that these books would never have happened if I hadn't met met him and if he hadn't been my mentor. So I'm in, I'm uh, very grateful to him. You mentioned that he supervised you. Yes. Is that a requirement for with a, you had a you had your doctoral degree? I did. You were did were you required to have a supervi a, a clinician a, a psychiatry supervisor? No, a physician um, supervisor. Well, th there was one year uh, after I had my degree where I had to accumulate uh, sixteen. 1,600 hours ah. in practice time being supervised in order to sit for the state licensing okay. exam. Okay, so, so he was that, a supervisor during that period. Yes, okay. that was required. After that, it was uh, entirely voluntary, but advisable. Most people in my field continue to be supervised for many, many years, develop a, what's called a peer supervision group. So uh, people we met along the way in our training uh, who we liked, talked well with, learned from, taught, uh, maybe a group of four or five who meet monthly, talk about cases. And that's in addition to an individual supervisor, because we, we all feel, and uh, this is a little different than uh, maybe the cultural belief these days, we all feel our work is very complex. And um, we look at factors that make it complex and we think our work is better for it. Although I think the culture now and some of the um, claims at for a quicker, uh, quicker fixes don't think it has to be as complicated as, uh, as many of us who, who think psychodynamically uh, do, do believe. So you had a kind of a, a senior mentor that you, yes, who actually had some formal relationship with you that was l over overlooking your cases. It was a paid supervision. I mean, I would pay him for his huh. time. Okay, and um, uh, he didn't have any. Well, he had legal responsibility. Okay, but he, uh, you know, he trusted me to present the cases that I wanted help with, and that I would learn from him in a way that would help all my all my work with my cases. Okay, and then you also had you, you mentioned a peer group that you built over time. Right. Do you, you still use that yes. kind of function? and that's entirely, again, voluntary. But, you know, by now, they're 30-year relationships or more, and it functions very well. And we can talk about the competing new ideas and how to adjust approaches based on some new ideas as needed. And there's a high level of uh, trust and learning that goes on in that group. You mentioned that your mentor was a psychiatrist. He is a psychiatrist. So could you briefly, for folks who may not understand the difference, yeah. what's the difference between a psychiatrist and a psychologist? Right. Good question. A uh, psychiatrist uh, went to medical school and then uh, for four years and then specialized in psychiatry, decided that that would be their specialty and did a th what's called a residency, a three-year residency at a medical medical institution. Like I'm affiliated with Mass General, and I, I have helped over the years 
to teach and supervise some of the psychiatry residents there. They graduate residency and then take an exam and they now uh, are licensed in psychiatry. A psychologist goes to graduate school in, in psychology and does not have a medical background necessarily, can't prescribe medication, except in, I think, New Mexico and Louisiana, where if you take a, a, a course a cert, uh, with a certain number of hours in psychopharmacology and neurobiology, uh, you're then permitted to actually uh, prescribe medication. These are underserved areas where the culture believed it would be worthwhile to train psychologists so that they could prescribe and, and work in these mostly rural underserved areas. But the, the, uh, the, the education is very different. A psychologist is trained more as a psychotherapist. Some, some psychiatrists uh, enjoy that and practice psychotherapy, but more these days are involved with uh, neuroscience and psychopharmacology. And, and the reason I kind of asked, well, I, I was interested in you explaining that difference, but when you said that your mentor was a psychiatrist, yes. that kind of surprised me because I'm, that, I typically think of you go to see a psychiatrist to get that psychopharmacology right. uh, usage. Yeah. And so how did it, how is it that you came to have a psychiatrist as your mentor? Well, there's a branch of psychiatry that is interested in uh, psychotherapy uh, and interested in becoming psychoanalysts. Okay. And this was someone who had had advanced training in psychoanalysis and spent his time doing psychotherapy and not prescribing medication. So he was excellent and focused in the areas that I wanted to learn about. Sure. Yeah. Is there competition between schools of thought about using psychotherapy as opposed to pharmaceuticals? Well, or is it find the right tool for the right problem? Well, the idea in, in most cases is find the right tool for the right problem. Uh, at its worst, there are those who don't understand that changing the brain through medication for some, through psychotherapy for some, through medication and psychotherapy, that the, these are the best, uh, best approaches depending on the patient. There's some that have an ideology that they're following, but they've missed the boat because every, all the rest of us understand that psychotherapy probably changes the brain and it's the better way to do it for some people. And psychopharmacology certainly changes the brain and it's a better way to do it for some people. And the combination very often works better than either one alone. You have, and you have maintained overlapping academic appointments along with institutional roles and your private practice. In 1986, you were appointed as a clinical instructor in psychology in the Department of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. How did you come to start teaching at uh, Harvard Med? Well, that uh, could be a little misleading. Okay. When I was on the staff at Cambridge Hospital, that comes with an appointment to Harvard Medical School. Oh, okay. But I didn't actually teach medical students at Harvard Medical School. Okay. And the same is true when I moved to Mass General Hospital. Okay. The same is true. I have an appointment at Harvard Medical School, uh -huh. but it's a it's through a hospital affiliation. Okay. And I don't personally teach the medical students at Harvard Medical oh, School. Okay. So, but you were a clinical instructor. So, does did that mean you were teaching? Or? I was teaching. I, I taught psychology students at uh, or trainees at Cambridge Hospital, and then at Mass General. Okay. I've taught. Again, psychiatry residents, psychology interns. And in fact, now that I think about it, for a long time, uh, once a month, I was teaching Harvard medical students who were doing a rotation on the inpatient psychiatric unit at Mass General. So there'd be a handful, four to eight, and I would teach them about psychodynamic psychotherapy for one or two hours a month. They would be at the hospital already. So I, I never taught you know, a big Harvard Medical School class. Okay. But these were these were the Harvard Medical School uh, students. Who were doing rotations at, exactly. at the hospitals you exactly. were at. Okay. Yes. So in 94, you left Cambridge Hospital and you took an appointment as a senior assistant psychologist in psychiatry and, and a clinical associate in psychiatry at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. What made you decide to change your affiliation from Cambridge to MassGen? Good question. I think the culture 
of Mass General suited me better than the culture of Cambridge Hospital. And I had two very close colleagues who were at Mass General. I liked working with them. I liked spending time with them. One of them brought me on to be a, a supervisor and teacher in the psychology program there. One was a psychiatrist, actually. One was a, uh, the assistant chief of psychology also. And she, she wanted me, she brought me on there. And, uh, it, it just seemed, um, frankly, Mass General is a very large place, has a very large department of psychiatry. It just seemed as though there would be more opportunity for me there, which has turned out to be the case. Did you work inpatient? I, I didn't ask this earlier. Did you work inpatient and outpatient? I never worked inpatient. Uh, during my training, I worked at Mount Auburn Hospital inpatient unit for a year, but I never was a psychologist on an inpatient unit, no. Okay. What's the difference between doing that kind of practice yeah. and oh, the practice you do? Very, very different. The patients, of course, inpatient are sicker. That's why they're there. They have uh, more severe forms of, of mental illness, and the treatment uh, often focuses on uh, medication, psychopharmacology. And uh, over the years, of course, the the environment, the insurance environment has changed. So patients don't stay on an inpatient unit very long. So it's not very uh, satisfying to someone who's interested in psychotherapy because the patient is there for five days, seven days. You meet with them a few times and then they're gone. And I tend to... uh, meet with people longer than longer than that in psychotherapy. What would you say are some of the most common misperceptions people have around psychotherapy that you find yourself having to correct? So if you're at a cocktail party and somebody says, what do you do? I do psychotherapy. What do they assume that's wrong? Well, that's uh, interesting because, you know, for the, I would say now that the culture has become very educated about psychotherapy. For a long time, maybe in the 70s, 60s and 70s, it was almost necessary to be in psychotherapy, to be considered a educated, informed, sophisticated person in certain circles. So people were in uh, uh, psychotherapy and mostly talk therapy. And, uh, you know, then there's always the, the group that feels, oh, if you have to go talk to somebody, it means there's something wrong with you. And that's only for sick people. It's, it's not for relatively healthy people. And, you know, oh, it takes forever. No, it doesn't take forever. And, oh, I think uh, I can talk to my friends and there's no difference between talking to my friends and talking to you, talking to in therapy. No, that's not true either because we're trained to hear in different ways than friends are. And um, so those are, those are some of the misconceptions, I would say. In 2010, you received a grant to conduct a study on the role of fatherhood on adult development. Uh, this study evolved, as I understand, into the Fatherhood Project today. Is that That's correct? That's exactly right, yes. So what was your the initial focus of your research? How did you, what was the grant originally written to do? Well, it is a grant, but it's, it's a little misleading. We, we did start, we, we started as a, uh, a research organization, and we were funded actually by a private donor. I was funded by a private donor, and uh, which made it possible for me to to uh, have a small salary and hire two people. We did a study trying to determine whether the relative importance in fathering of supervising your kids and disciplining your kids versus the warmth and supportive approach. And we we did a, a study which I would say was inconclusive and not as important as I would have liked it to be at, at that point. What, we're, what we've continued to do and the way that I've changed the organization, I think, is more vibrant, more important, and uh, uh, more central to uh, the questions about fatherhood that need, need to be addressed. So this is interesting because this happened in addition to my continuing my private practice, continuing to, to be involved in teaching and training at Mass General, and this was just an add-on to my professional responsibilities, which I loved. Uh, I asked this person if he would fund my work, and he said yes. And I was uh, I was thrilled. I mean, this, this was good fortune on my part. Uh, how did this happen, or or why me? Because let's see, I, 
I had been in practice for just almost 30 years, and I had built something of a reputation and was well-respected, had worked hard, and this person, person of means, respected me and, and trusted me. So it was, you know, hard won after 30 years, I would say. And uh, it's a little entrepreneurial, frankly, which I'm enjoying, although it's complicated and it's much more pressure than I've ever felt in any other part of my my work. I'm sighing as I say that, uh, and um, but it came from consistent hard work. It's not as though I this this is what I wanted to do 30 years ago, and after five years I was just looking for money for it. It came to me after um, uh, many many years of work, and it also came to me. I should say this. There's a personal element to it because uh, when my kids uh, grew up and were out of the house, I missed them. And one of the m most critical parts of my life had been my being their father. And I was very committed to being their father, very involved in their day to day lives. I enjoyed that very much, found it very satisfying. And I thought I could continue to make a contribution to the world as a father and studying fatherhood uh, if I could start this organization. So th that was another reason that I that I did it, in addition to the fact that, uh, frankly, uh, you know, the culture's changing in this way now. Millennials want to be very involved uh, with, with their kids all the time. Women, since the fem feminist movement, are working uh, much more. They're not, uh, a man can't, um, a father can't just think, oh, my wife's taking care of the kids. He has much more frontline caretaking responsibility, but then there's the question: Does he have the skills for it? So the the uh, uh, the nature the nature of the culture is changing, and fathers need advice, need programs, need skill building, and uh, there needs to be uh, research on uh, on fathers, which we're doing also. So this is all very exciting to me, and it came to me, you know, relatively late age. I mean, I hope I'm going to live for 20 more years, but came to me just before I turned 60, really. Okay. And and I hope to have this as my my work until I can't work anymore. So the original idea in 2010, yeah. was it primarily research or was it service-oriented? It was primarily research, but we didn't have the data. The data we had, actually, very interesting comes from the longest long longitudinal study of adult development in the world. It's called the Harvard Study of Adult Development. Uh, it was started with the classes of 1939, 40, 41, and 42 at Harvard, and which includes John F. Kennedy's class, by the way. <laughs> the way research was done then was not nearly up to the standards of uh, modern research. So the research had to be adapted. We had to make interpretations of information that had been gathered. It all just seemed a little uh, uncomfortable for me, not quite up to the standards I, I, I wanted. So after a year where it cost basically a little over $100,000 to publish one paper, I decided uh, I, this was not the right way to go. So I hired uh, someone who had been doing some work in the field in fatherhood, and we, we made the fatherhood project more program-based for a while and developed several programs in the community. I also hired a social media webmaster person, research assistant, administrative assistant, all rolled into one. And uh, we're, the, we're the core group, been together the longest. And then as our programs developed, I, again, saw a better opportunity to do research. So uh, I hired a senior researcher uh, at Mass General who had been, who's interested in fatherhood and had done his dissertation 40 years ago on fathers. And uh, we then embarked on a research program in the Department of Obstetrics at Mass General Hospital, in which we surveyed in two weeks 401 men who accompanied their wives and partners to prenatal visits. And we got a lot of good data from that. The paper is probably ready to be published. There'll be more than one paper, but the first one uh, 
in another month. And uh, we're now expanding and doing a similar survey at the community health centers in Chelsea and Revere, which are also mass general health centers. And um, we have a, basically a pretty robust research program. In fact, I just hired a half-time research fellow to help us. So, uh, you know, th there's been this gradual evolution of of this nonprofit business, of, if you want to call it that, of this fatherhood project within the Department of Psychiatry. And I do want to point out to, to everyone, we don't get any support from Mass General or the Department of Psychiatry. Okay. All our money is either earned through our uh, programs, that's a small percentage, or through uh, donors. My original donor has continued to support us every year. And in fact, I've been fortunate enough, he says, if we raise if we raise a million dollars, he'll give another million dollars. Wow. And, um, you know, all of this happens just because I've worked hard and, and uh, things have gone well and yeah. uh, people seem to want to help. So it's, it's not a big, uh, it, it's not a moneymaker for anybody. It's not venture capital money by any means. It's, it's uh, what social capital money, I guess, uh, is yeah. really what it is. And, but it's been very satisfying for me. I, I love doing what I'm doing. I love being the executive director of the Fatherhood Project. There have been challenges, uh, but it, it's going well. What do I do? I supervise my director of programs. I supervise, well, I, so I help to develop programs with my program director. Okay. The uh, curricula for applying certain concepts of parenting and fathering we develop, I help develop with him, and um, uh, I supervise the social media website uh, person. I collaborate uh, with with the researcher in doing this uh, research, and I travel around the country uh, making presentations. I was in Richmond, Virginia. I'm going to Tulsa, Oklahoma, of all places I never thought I'd ever go, <laughs> and uh, to make a presentation at a conference of all conferences, the Women's Empowerment Conference in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Huh. They, they want to know about men because they, to their credit, understand that men have an influence on women. So I, I, I do that. I make presentations at, at conferences. These are so the American Public Health Association Conference in Denver in October. And th this, will, this will all continue. What, what is important about publishing in peer-reviewed journals, I'm assuming that's what you mean when you say we're going to publish a paper. Yes, it's not. Yes. It's not something like in Psychology Today or something. It's, that's it's, right. Uh, and you're going. What you're describing, for the most part, I think, are academic conferences. Why is it important for you to be Why is it important for you to be participating in that literature and in that community? Yeah, good question. There are a couple of reasons. I mean, you know, essentially, well, it's about spreading the word. So our findings in obstetrics about the men who uh, are who appear with their wives i'm hoping that when we present the findings and what this suggests for running an obstetric service a little differently so that it's more father friendly and providing services for fathers who more and more want to be very involved with their infants but don't know how and they want to be supportive of their pregnant wives and partners but don't know how that if we can run programs, that it, it will keep uh, families intact more. Uh, the d data shows that the fathers who are involved early in their kids' development uh, from birth are more likely to stay involved uh, with their families. So I'm presenting because I'm hoping the, the word will get out. There'll be other uh, people from obstetric services there They'll want to know more. How do you do this? What are the mechanics of it? Will you come consult to us so we can do it? And that it will basically change the way obstetric services are run, which I would see as institutional change to get fathers more involved, uh, emotionally involved with their kids, which all the research shows is positive. So any way that we can spread the word and help to make institutional changes in ways that we believe positive, I'm ready to do it. Why is it important that it go into a academic journal? Like, uh, I, I'm, I'm going to make one, a journal of obstetrics, for yeah. example. It's okay. a peer-reviewed publication. Why okay. is it important yeah. to do that rather than Boston Globe? Well, the Boston Globe's important, important too, too, actually. Sure. I, I don't need to diminish that. But, no, no, but no, no, but, no, but they are different. You're right. So, um, number one, 
a peer-reviewed journal means that the work uh, we've done doing research is respected at the highest levels of uh, science requirements uh, for research, uh, which then tends to give it credibility and validates its, its significance, its importance. And it's different than if I just stood up and say, let's, fa let's get fathers more involved in obstetric services. Anybody can say that. We've done the science. So we have the research that supports it and, it's, and the value of it. And it just has more power. It's about power, I guess. Yes. And authority. And coming out of academia, I think our work can be more influential. So you, in 2011, you mentioned you started to transition from just doing research to doing some program programming. Your initial expansion included working with some of the, some schools, some, I assume local schools, and then also and then also working with some Massachusetts prisons. How did you come to make that jump, and, and why those target populations? Well, th that also is a good question. We were told when we got started that fathers are hard to find. They don't like to come. They don't like to come to programs. They don't like to come to groups. They're hard to find. They don't think they need any help. They, they, uh, they don't want to go out of their way. They're working. It's, it's complicated. So what we did was, you know, we were, first of all, we were interested in underserved populations. So the incarcerated dads that I taught in uh, Shirley and Concord prisons, they uh, were clearly underserved. I mean, uh, we wanted to get them more programs. I wanted to teach them about staying involved with their kids, even when they were in prison. I wanted to teach them certain things about uh, skills, about child development. And so I, di I did that uh, four or five times. And they're certainly an underserved population. And uh, then teen dads, there are kids who, either because they, uh, they believe that being a man is uh, having a child, get girls pregnant at very early ages, and they find themselves having the responsibilities of fatherhood. Now, many of them don't stay around, but some do. Some take it seriously, and they want to be a good father. So, And that's an underserved population. So we ran groups for uh, teen dads also. And, and then we, we decided, okay, there are teen dads, but why not do a prevention program that could decrease the number of teen dads? So we went into 10th grade health classes and talked to some of the, kid, the kids there about five requirements for uh, being a good father, after which they all realized, I'm not any of those things. I can't be a father. So I don't know if it's had an impact or it hasn't, but I, I hope so. So it, we, were, we were focusing on underserved populations. So the programs that you have today, you mentioned teen dads, incarcerated dads. Some other ones that you have listed on your website include becoming a dad, father Readiness and for adolescence, which is that is that the that's the, the prevention, prevention program. program? Yep. Dads matter in pediatrics. What's that? That's a very successful program that we have, in, in which it's held in the Revere Community Health Center. Chelsea and Revere are often first stops for immigrants who come to the Boston area, so they're not well situated, and they're not they tend to be lower income dads, and. Um, they also have difficulty being involved with their kids for various reasons. And um, what we do is 14 times a year on Saturday mornings, we have a group where dads and kids come and do activities, play with their kids and uh, for a part of the, the day. And th these are people who, uh, families who are referred uh, from the pediatricians uh, at Revere Health Center and some of the social service programs that are embedded in the health center. And they are at-risk families, so uh, possibly at-risk dads, meaning they've been incarcerated, they're unemployed, they have ADD, they can't, they don't really trust the world very well. So they get referred to our program and they, they, they get involved and come on Saturday mornings, spend time with their kids, uh, which their partners love, of course. And then the last 20 to 30 minutes, 
we pull them out of the program and teach them something about fathering skills, parenting skills. And so each week there's a, there'd be a different topic involving empathy, the importance of attachment, positive discipline strategies, executive function, things, things like this that are critical for fathering. So it's a, and it's very successful. The, the, and then twice a year, the program director organizes trips. One trip was to the Children's Museum. There were 17 families that came. And then a trip to the uh, Stone Zoo in Stoneham. Again, I think 18 to 20 families uh, came. And there's a nice sense of community. They feel like they belong somewhere. They're not strangers in a strange land. And it's a good way to get them involved in the health center Maybe their kids get better health care. Maybe they get better health care. Maybe they make use of social services that are housed in the health center. It's a way of getting disenfranchised dads, underserved dads involved in what the system can offer them. And then the last program that we hadn't talked about was divorcing dads. Yeah. So this was this is a very good idea. Uh, this is a program, a, a class, an eight-session class that I and my director of programs, but uh, I've been the main force in this, hold for dads somewhere in the process of divorce. The purpose of it is it's the same concept that guides just about all of our work to increase the emotional engagement of fathers in their children's lives. So even as divorced dads and as non-resident dads, first of all, we talk about the critical importance of their involvement and that kids can have uh, very good outcomes even with a non-resident dad, as long as the dad is engaged uh, in their life. So each week there's a, we have a curriculum, and each week that there's a subject that is raised. Uh, again, these same, some of these same concepts, empathy, attachment, positive discipline, co-parenting, which is often difficult, and the, the, uh, the importance of, of maintaining contact with their day-to-day -day lives. <laughs> How do you evaluate the effectiveness of any of these one, any yeah. of these programs? Okay, now this is a uh, this is a sticky point that I'm not proud of. So uh, we haven't done that yet, uh, and we're just. This is one of the reasons that I just hired a half-time research fellow. She and I and the director of research are going to fig figure out how to do this, which sounds easier than it really is. But we want to make the programs evidence-based and demonstrate effectiveness. So we're, this is next on the agenda. Sounds like a good research project for future Very, publications, possibly. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'm curious, so your professional career leading up to your involvement with the Fatherhood Project was primarily on an individual basis. Based on your description of psychotherapy, you probably got a chance to kind of hear a lot about dysfunction in father-son, father-daughter relationships, I yeah. assume. How did you make the jump to trying to teach people how to do it positively? You mean how to teach, uh, how to teach fathers how, 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 to, to, how to be a father? How to be a father. I mean, parenting doesn't seem to necessarily be directly in the field that you had worked up till that point. I suppose that's true. Although, uh, often in a psychotherapy, I mean, a parent might say, I'm having trouble with my son, my daughter, and then describe situations. And we, we go into the, the father's own history of his life with his parents. But then there's, there's also room for suggestions about, about parenting. So somewhere in the back of my mind, uh, you know, maybe that father wouldn't have had to ask me that question or had that problem if he understood more about fathering skills. So there's the idea of prevention. Okay. Which, what I'm trying to get at is how does your how oh, did your okay. history inform your practice now with the Fatherhood Project? I guess it would be. The well, I'm not sure that it's going to be a, as direct as uh, you might want it to be, but you know, over the years I worked with a lot of fathers, a lot of men, yeah. and so when I started the Fatherhood Project, the question really was what's important to think about with fathers, and what's important is how to be a father, how to be a good father. Yeah. And there's not only one, there's not one concept, uh, there's not only one way to be a good father. But if we're serving the, the underserved population, uh, there's a lot of, you know, father absence or superficial involvement and a lot of pain. One of the things I became aware of 
as I was teaching the incarcerated dads, is a, a huge percentage of the dads had absent fathers, never knew a father. So, and there they are sitting in prison. So, you know. Absent as a result. Yes. Now they're absent. Yes. Some of them very painfully so because they know what they've done. But so, you know, the idea came, well, if we can get fathers involved, yeah, maybe we'll save a few people from going to prison and repeating their father's absence. So, so you said there's not one way to be a good father. That's right. But there's got to be some baseline ideas you've, you've got. It sounds like being present is one of them. What are, the, what are the kind of the baseline things that you've learned either through your practice or through your, through your work with the Fatherhood Project that form the basis of, of what you try to teach as being a good father? Well, as you pointed out, being present is one. Be, be, be in their lives. Be there, be there for them. That doesn't mean every day necessarily, but generally speaking, being, uh, being involved. You, you can have a separate life also, but the important thing is that your kid feels, your child feels you're there, all, you're there for them. That's number one. Number two, emotional regulation. So that in order to be a good father, you have to have certain personality characteristics. One is you need to be able to regulate your own emotions because you don't want to be emotionally dysregulated with your child or even in front of your child. Now, this often takes the form of anger and it's just not good to teach your kids. Uh, first of all, you hurt them when you're very angry at them, when you're dysregulated. Secondly, it, it's not necessary. If you're trying to teach them, you don't have to scream at them and yell at them. And thirdly, that's no way to be an adult, to go around yelling every time you're upset about something. And so in order to be a good father, you have to be able to regulate your own emotions. You also have to be able to read another person. So you need to understand your child's experience. And you need to know that it's your job to understand your child's experience. Who is this child? Who is this other person? When are they happy? When are they sad? What makes them scared? What are their strengths? What are their weaknesses? So I would say the more you can actually understand and know your child, the better the father you would be as well. And then there are the you know basic practical things like um, supporting contributing to support of the family economically yes absolutely economically keeping them out of keeping the family out of poverty and which is never good makes life hard for everybody and practical things around the house or with the kids knowing how to change a diaper or i mean you don't have to but just being involved in some in some way i guess uh, is the point Talking a little bit about the mechanics of, of running an organization like this. Yeah. Is, is the Fatherhood Project a separate entity, a legal entity, like a 501c3, or is it a subordinate organization to the psychiatry department? Uh, <laughs> that's an interesting question. Okay, we're in the psychiatry department. Why are we in the psychiatry department? Because I'm in the psychiatry department and I started it. Okay. And I, I wanted it to be affiliated with Mass General. So that's why we're in the psychiatry department. Nobody ever tells me what to do. Sometimes I'm told what not to do, but no one ever tells me what to do. I get a lot of help. If I want the chief of psychiatry to come to some meeting and say certain things, he'll, he's happy to do it. We are not a separate 501c3. We are under the Mass General umbrella 501c3. Okay. But we, all our funding is independent of the department and the hospital. Okay. So they provide you a, a place to operate. They, they must provide you some administrative support in terms of finance, financial management, that kind of thing, I guess, but not the actual finances. That's, that is correct. So. Yes. And I use the, sometimes the development office uh, helps with fundraising. Records are kept on an online uh, portal that I have access to, you know, where my money is, and I, uh, it's all organized, and I can see it comes in, it comes out, payroll and uh, medical benefits and all of that. So that all happens through the, um, uh, the hospital, yes. Okay. And you mentioned before that you get no funding from Mass General, that you get some small amount from char charges that you're able to... to you get some small amount of funding from the ability to charge for some of your programs, but most of it's donations. Yeah, oh yes. Uh, the, 
majority by, by far is donations. Yes, okay. absolutely. And how do you go about? You said you mentioned you work with the development department. Well, at Mass what General. I did actually was is different. I actually hired somebody within the Fatherhood Project as our development officer, who raised money for us, and uh, then. When it seemed as though her work was done, I'm just now hiring another person, actually, within the Fatherhood Project to raise money, organize meetings that I'll speak at, get people uh, on the advisory board who might make donations or might know other people who will make donations. But it's we do, we do it. You have a so you mentioned an advisory board. Do you have an advisory board for the Fatherhood Project? I'm just just about done forming it right now. Okay. Yes. What, what advice would you have to folks who are interested in social entrepreneurship, you know, trying to put together programs like the Fatherhood Project, based on your experiences? What's been most challenging, and what were kind of the secrets of your success? So if I wanted to develop a program, not necessarily to work with fathers, but yeah. you know, mothers or some other kind of socially important topic. Without question... The most challenging aspect has been the, uh, funding our program. The the, uh, the academic aspects, the uh, the research, the the uh, publishing, the presentations, all that is uh, very familiar to us. That that becomes the easy part, the real content of our work. The hardest thing is is keeping it keeping it going through funding. And you know, there have been times when I've been chasing down money. Because I can see that in four months, I'm not going to be able to uh, make payroll. And I've been able to do it the whole time, but it really wears on me. At three in the morning, that's what I'm thinking about. I'm not thinking about the group I'm going to run or the next Divorcing Dads class. I'm thinking about how to get a breakthrough with uh, with funding. Yeah. That was actually my next question, is what keeps you up at night? So it's That's funding. what keeps me up at night. That's it. Yep. Okay. Um, <laughs> other than funding, what's the most challenging uh, aspect of leadership and leading an organization like the Fatherhood Project that you've faced? Or, or is funding really the, the single issue? Well, I think I've been good at establishing relationships, working relationships with people, and uh, making sure people were in the right positions and doing what they're good at, which I consider to be part of the requirements of a good leader. And then there, there maybe was, there was one issue at uh, early on because the person I hired to be director of programs had been doing things in the fatherhood field for 10 or 12 years. So he, his involvement predated my involvement, but he was working for me. So there was some tension about who's the leader, when, is he going to accept some of my ideas, which are a little different than what he had been doing? I had to explain that and, and make it work for him so that he wasn't resentful and angry. And now we have an excellent working relationship, and uh, we're, we're expanding our programs. Just yesterday, actually, interestingly, in New Hampshire, we'll, we'll probably be involved in a lot of the schools in New Hampshire or some of the schools in New Hampshire. And uh, we're presenting, I think it's August 3rd, at a conference, that, a statewide conference. And we're going to present some of our ideas about fathers in the schools. And schools can, if they want, it's not just us. There, there'll be 600 people there. And, and there are maybe t 15 experts. And we're one of the experts. So they, the, the schools can decide, oh, we want a fatherhood program in our school. And then they would hire us or they they could decide, oh, we want to advance our technology in the school, and then they'd hire somebody else. But um, so, and, and John and I work very well. We had the wonderful meeting yesterday, and that was a challenge at first to make sure our relationship was solid, our wor working relationship was solid. So that was another challenge in addition to the, the fundraising. And then there's always the question of priorities. So I've, I've, had, the, I've had to mix. I, I've had multiple considerations, uh, criteria for programs, which ones are going to bring in some money to relieve some of the pressure right. for fundraising, but is that what we really want to do, or do we want to serve the underserved lower-income population, which basically we end up being volunteers for? You know, we're doing thirty to $35,000 worth of work at Revere Community Health Center for $3,000, so that can't go on forever, 
But whereas, and then divorcing dads, you know, that actually I charge for membership and uh, we make some money on that program. So how to balance that and, and uh, uh, our mission has more to do with the underserved population, but we need some money or there won't be any population that we're serving. So th that's been another challenge. In conclusion, I teach young folks who are going into hospital administration. What should they know about mental health, psychology, working with the psychiatry department? What, what's, what should they understand about that? You know how in real estate, when you go buy a house, everybody says to you, location, location, location? Yes. In this work, there are two words. But I would say the first word, relationships, relationships, relationships. You have to make good relationships so that people want you want you to be doing what you're doing and will support any kind of uh, not our nonprofit uh, work. And then competence, competence, competence. You have to be good at what you're doing or, you know, you're, you're not going to be able to uh, have an organization on your own. And, you know, even if you are good at what you're doing, then you have to worry about relationships, relationships, relationships. So those are that I think that's the magic, the magic combination. Competence and relationships. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I've really enjoyed this. I have too. I'm happy to do it. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production of the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org, for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community, and we'll talk with you again in about two weeks.